So let's take a look now at God's Word, Proverbs chapter 30. Going to look at four verses here today, and I'm willing to bet you've not heard a sermon on this particular text, and you'll know why in just a moment. Let's read it together. Verse 24, four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. You're like, this is the text you're going to preach on this morning? You're going to tell us about rodents, bugs, and lizards, Pastor Scott? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Because you know what's buried in this text is a theme, is a concept. And we're going to talk about that concept today. We started this series, it's a four-week series, started it last week called In God's Eyes. And what we're doing is we're looking at ideas, words, concepts that we've got our own idea about, that the world has defined for us, but we really need to know God's definition. We need to see them and embrace them from God's perspective. And the concept we're looking at today is success. Success. How many of you want to be successful? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you're either lying or lazy. All right? Success. Everybody wants success. Bookshelves are lined with books on the topic. Websites are devoted to success. There are conferences, retreats, seminars, webinars. I've been to some boring webinars, all right? Sometimes pastors are invited to go and to speak somewhere about success. If I'm ever invited to speak on success, my question is, uh, success in what exactly? That's an important question. Because you don't want to listen to somebody telling you how to be successful in something that they are not successful in, right? You don't want me, Scott Grimm, telling you how to be successful in plumbing, all right, or electrical work. Or certain DIY projects around the house, okay? Uh, that's, that's not a good fit. Me and all that stuff. That's a, that's, a, that's a pork chop at a Jewish picnic. It doesn't work, okay? Now, marriage, parenting, catch me on a good day. I might have something important to say on that topic. How to have a successful diet. Well, don't ask me right after Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, but the specific definition of success is what really matters here. What does this word mean? There's a little suffix there. Cess or seed, if you turn it into a verb, uh, as in succeed, okay? It means, that suffix means to go. It means to move, all right? You see that suffix on other words, uh, process, proceed, all right? That means to move ahead, to go ahead, uh, Recess, reseed, that means to go back. Uh, Precede means to go prior. Uh, intercede means to go between. But this word success, succeed, means to go or to move underneath. To supplant. To take the place of, all right? To beat someone out of their position. A lot of that happening uh, with college football teams yesterday as we prepare for conference championships. In short, success means winning. It means winning. When we talk about success, we're talking about winning. And if you're talking about winning, you got to know what's the end goal. What's the finish line? 
to your success. Well, for a pro football team, that would be the Super Bowl. For a Major League Baseball team, that would be the World Series. What are we talking about? When we talk about succeeding in life, what are we succeeding in achieving? That's what everybody wants to know, but few know how to do it. And that's why this is a cottage industry, talking about success. You gotta know the finish line and how to get there or you're not talking about real success. So we got to know that definition. And throughout history, as man has struggled to come up with a definition for something, who is it that's waiting in the wings ready to provide their own definition? That's our ancient foe. Satan is there to give us his definition of whatever it is that we can't define. And this is what he does. He's always got some perverse, corrupt, perverted definition of what God has intended for good. And the reason he does that is because he himself is a perverse, corrupted version of something that God created perfect. If you know anything about the devil, you know he wasn't created as the devil. He was created as the most perfect, most glorious, most magnificent angel in all of heaven. He was the, he was the worship leader of glory. He reflected praise and light onto God. His name in Latin originally was Lucifer, means light bearer, Heleel in Hebrew, but one day he went from glorifying and boasting about God to glorifying and boasting about himself. He said, I will be like the most high. God said, no, you won't. It kicked him out of heaven. And he then became the corrupt being that we know as Satan. But he was not, uh, he was not less than powerful. He, re he retained his power. He was merely a corrupt version of that very powerful being. And since that time... He has sought, he has made his goal to pervert and twist whatever God has intended for good. And there are perverted satanic versions of every good thing. God gave us things like, well, like sex in the confines of marriage. It is a good thing. Does Satan give us a, a, a twisted alternative of that? Yes, he's presented us with adultery, with homosexuality, with pornography, with lust. God is the source of truth. Satan's got his version of that too. He's concocted lies, concocted false religion to deceive man. And he has the same version of success, a perverted, twisted rendition. And he offers lies to the world regarding how to obtain this thing that we think is success. And I want to talk about that right now as we start. Five lies about success. In your notes, lie number one. To be successful, you have to be beautiful and have a great personality. You gotta be pretty and you gotta be charming. Is that true? I'm thinking about our last couple of presidents. I don't know. What does the Bible say in Proverbs 31 30? It speaks of charm. It says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. All right? No one ever obtained true success by being charming. Adolf Hitler, he charmed Germany. He gave rousing emotional speeches that fueled the rise of the Nazi movement, and yet that charisma was deceitful. It hid the truth. What was Hitler in reality? He was a neurotic psychopath. His goal was the eradication of the Jewish people. He, he considered them to be the root of all the problems in the world, and so he sought to get rid of them. Was he successful? Well, he wiped out six million of them. But ultimately, he fell short of his goal because the Russian army enclosed around him and he was removed from power all right he he he, he did not achieve world domination as he desired uh, uh, charm was not enough Marilyn Monroe one of the most beautiful glamorous actresses in film history was she 
a success. Well, not in life. She had three failed marriages. She died of a barbiturate overdose at the age of 36. And so beauty was not enough. You can't charm God. You can't entice God with beauty. Satan tried, took, took Jesus up on the highest mountaintop, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, said, I'm going to give all this to you, Jesus, if you will just bow down and worship me. Christ could not be enticed. Of course, it helped that, it helped that Christ created everything that Satan was offering him. And so you cannot seek to lure God in with charm, with beauty. That's a lie. Lie number two in your notes is that to be successful, you have to be smart. Is that a lie? Yes, that's a lie. Some of you are like, well, thank God. (laughs) Thank God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. They are futile. People break their necks pursuing intellectual accolades. That degree from Harvard, that degree from Yale, you know, that second, third, fourth degree, uh, you know, you can have more degrees than a thermometer, and it's not enough to achieve success, not alone, because knowledge, here's the thing about knowledge, the measure for knowledge keeps changing. We keep making scientific breakthroughs. Some people will say, well, see, that, that's mankind. Mankind has a lot of knowledge. Yeah, but here's the, the only thing a scientific breakthrough proves is that not that long ago you were wrong. You made a breakthrough. Now you think something else. How long until you make another breakthrough? You know? Uh, In Columbus Day, the smartest guys in the world thought the earth was flat. Apparently that's making a comeback. What? Uh, It used to be scientific minds believed that the smallest particle was the atom. And then they split it and all this junk came out. And so we make our breakthroughs, and God must sit in heaven and laugh. You guys, you still don't have it all figured out. Because our little fallen three pounds of matter cannot compute at a billionth of the speed of his mind. So God's not impressed with your intelligence. Has nothing to do with your success. And then lie number three. To be successful, you have to be strong. Nope. Proverbs, uh, actually it's Psalm, that's a typo. Psalm 147.10. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. Anybody stronger than God? He is above all. Alexander the Great was the greatest conqueror in world history. Big deal. Look at a map of the world. You see any kingdoms on that map that bear his name today. No, there are none that still stand He conquered more territory than anybody in history. And yet, you know what took him out? Not an arrow, not a spear, not a sword. He was partying in Babylon. He drank some unmixed wine. He developed a fever. And 14 days later, he was dead. And his kingdom, massive though it was, was divided among his four generals who hated each other. And his legacy began to erode from that day forward. Is he a success? He was not a success. Great is a relative term, as it turns out. And then there's line number four in your notes. To be successful, you have to be wealthy. Oh, man, we believe this one more than any of the others. I think that when most people think of success, this is what they're thinking about. How much money does that person have? You Google the most successful people, what will you get? A list of billionaires. That's what people think about. And yet, I think of Howard Hughes. One of the richest men who ever lived. Was he a success? Well, by many standards, he was. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world. He was the inspiration for Tony Stark 
If you think about Iron Man, okay, he, this guy Howard Hughes was the original uh, uh, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist, inventor, genius, right? And yet, despite his advancements in business, in aviation, in filmmaking, all of the things that he engaged in, what was his end? He went crazy. He slowly went insane. He holed up in his mansion. And he got dependent on codeine. And he developed an obsessive compulsive disorder. He grew his fingernails long. He grew his hair long. He sat all day eating chocolate bars in the nude and watched the same movie on repeat until he died. Success? I think not. Jeremiah 9.23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. God's not impressed with your wealth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And then there's line number five. To be successful, you have to be religious. I think we could buy this and shun the rest, and we'd think we're okay because, after all, religion is good, right? God loves religion, doesn't he? Did you know Jesus' biggest critics were religious people? Most, pap most pastors would say, I have that in common with Jesus. Most of my biggest critics are religious people too. Here's what 1 Samuel 15 says. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. What does that mean? That means God wants your love and your obedience more than your traditions and your rule keeping. And going to church on Sunday or synagogue on Saturday. These lies... These lies are the ones that Satan launches at us. And ironically, he's rather successful in lying to us about success. And so we need to know what is real success. If it's not might and power and wealth and intelligence and beauty, what is it? What is success? If it means to win, what is the prize that we win and how do we win it? Here's what Paul told Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. You know what this means? This means there's a literal prize. There is a real reward that I can earn based on how I live my life. That's what this means. Paul's talking about a real reward, a real crown. But I want you to understand something. And, and it's very important. You've got to remember this. This reward is not salvation. When I talk about this reward today, when I talk about success today, I'm not talking about salvation. Or excuse me. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm not. We, now, understand something. To be successful, you're, you're going to have to be saved. Salvation is a free gift. You must receive it. To be successful, you must have received salvation. But as you move forward as a saved man or woman... You earn a different reward, something other than salvation. Because God has a purpose for you beyond your salvation. Did you know that? If the reward we're talking about were salvation, then when you came to faith by Christ, he would have just sucked you up to heaven in a little mini rapture. He didn't do that. You're still here, aren't you? You know why? There's something for you to do. 
There is something for you to accumulate on this earth. What is it? Well, the world will tell you it's stuff, it's things, it's accolades, it's money, it's fame. What is it in reality? Scripture says it's the accumulation of something else. In your notes, success is the accumulation of wisdom. Wisdom, not smarts, not intelligence, not information. Wisdom. And the definition here in your notes is that wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective and choosing the way that pleases him. That's what wisdom is. It's so valuable. Scripture says you don't ever want to sell it. You don't ever want to trade it away. That's the definition of something that's valuable, right? If something has great price, you hold on to it. You don't just let it go for peanuts, right? This is something that you invest in. You do what you can to obtain it, and then you don't just fritter it away. You don't sell it for anything. It's priceless. Proverbs 23 says, buy the truth, do not sell it. I keep hearing commercials for gold. You know, they say, oh, the economy is in the tank, man. Uh, The dollar has been devalued. you got to invest in gold. Retains its value. Listen, compared to wisdom, that's monopoly money. This is the most precious thing. You don't trade it. And yet, despite that, few seek it. Few seek it. This is the minority path right here. How come? Because we keep falling for the counterfeit. We keep falling for the devil's version of success by which we don't obtain wisdom, but rather we obtain human intelligence. What's the difference between wisdom and intelligence? You might wonder. Here's my definition of intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to retain, remember, and regurgitate meaningless information. That's intelligence. Retain, remember, and regurgitate meaningless information. And a student that is a good student, he's a good student because he has perfected the timing of his forgetfulness of nonsense. That's right. That's the difference between a good student and a poor student. When I was growing up, I was not a good student. I was not. Now, when I became an adult, I went back, I got my master's. I was a much better student as an adult. But as a young man, not so hot. Not so hot. And the reason I was not such a good student when I was younger is because I always forgot the meaningless information before the test. Now, a lot of you, you forgot too, but you forgot it after the test. And that's the only difference between us. But we both forgot, so don't get cocky. It's the timing of our forgetfulness that that makes the difference between the intelligent and the not so intelligent. But do you want to base the success of your life off the timing of your forgetfulness? I don't. I don't. And there's a ton I don't know. And believe me, I know a lot of useless stuff. I mean, you ask me about Star Wars. I got you. Okay? Luke Dawkins and I, we can sit and talk about superheroes for hours. I'm not proud of that. But I can do it. I can sit and watch Jeopardy, and I can hang, man. I can beat every contestant before they even touch their clicker. I can beat them to the answer. And my wife is not impressed with that. She's in the kitchen going, you're not winning me money? I don't care. You know? So how is wisdom different from intelligence? Wisdom is the ability 
to have a myriad of moral options in front of you. You got this matrix. They're all coming down like a matrix of signals. And these signals come from our own flesh. They come from our peers. They come from that liar, the devil. And you see all these and wisdom is the ability to look at them. And by virtue of the word of God, you can select the right moral option because these signals all pertain to how we should be and think and feel and behave in our relationships. And wisdom is the ability to identify and choose and implement the right options to think and be and feel and behave to the glory of God and stick with it to the very end. See, wisdom is not simply knowing the right thing to do. It's doing it. And committing to it. And that's what makes it wisdom. Some of you know the right thing, but you don't do the right thing. Some of you are in relationships that you ought not be in. They're not honoring to God. You singles that are out there, you're involved in a relationship and it's just pulling you down. And you know it's wrong to be in that relationship and yet you stay in that relationship. That's not wisdom. And ultimately it will not result in success. And so when we're talking about wisdom, we could go a lot of places. I could take you to 1 Corinthians 1 where it says, and because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. I could take you to Proverbs 8, says wisdom was with God in the beginning. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom passages. For some reason, I've chosen one with bugs, lizards, and rodents. How come? Because the four creatures we're going to look at today, they are weak, they are small, but they all have a unique attribute that results in success. And so we're going to look at these four creatures today. And we're going to see four biblical models of true success. Okay, and we're going to start with this guy right here. We're going to start with the ant. The ant. How you doing, Antonio? Good to see you, buddy. We read that the ants are people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. That's the ant, all right? You go out in the winter... And what do you see animals doing? They're just trying to survive, aren't they? You know, the, the deer are scraping the bark off of trees in the wintertime. I just saw a deer right before Thanksgiving. I think I posted a picture online. There was a buck in our backyard. And uh, I showed my wife. I go, look at that. And uh, we had never seen one back there before. And he was eating berries off of this bush. My wife has wanted to take these bushes out because they got a lot of thorns on them. And I showed her. I said, look at that deer. And she goes, okay, the bush stays. You know, some of you are like, yeah, keep the bush and install a deer blind, you know. <laughs> My wife would never forgive me. But the animals in winter are, they're just trying to survive, you know? You've got the rodents and the squirrels and the chipmunks and they're foraging and scavenging and trying to find something. All the birds, they've flown south for the winter. The bears have given up. They're hibernating. They're just trying to wait it out. Where are the ants? You don't see them. Where are they? They're underground. What are they doing? They're having a party. They're chowing down, baby. On what? On all the food that they stored up in the summer months. In the summer, when the bears are chomping down and the deer are chomping down, what are the ants doing? They're searching for food. They're, trying, they're, they, they're thinking about the future. They're like, it's summer, but winter's coming. I got to focus. I got to focus. I'm going to eat just what I need for now, and the rest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hoard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to store it up. Because winter's coming. I'm investing in the future. And all the other bugs are like, dude, chill out. You know, it's summertime. It's vacation. Kick up your tarsal scintilla and relax, man. They're like, no, I got to stay focused. And they go for things that are 
invested in the future. They work day by day by day. We can learn from the ant in your notes. Key to success number one, plan to reach an objective with daily discipline. Plan with daily discipline. That ant gets up every day. He goes out, he sticks to the plan. And he invests. What's your point, Pastor Scott? Are we to be preppers? No, no. Are we to hoard money like Scrooge McDuck? No, although saving is good. Wished I'd done more of it before now. But this is much, much bigger than that. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break into steel. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, we're investing in the future like the ant, but not in something temporal that we consume and then it's gone. We're investing in something that lasts forever. What lasts forever? Two things, and only two. The word of God and the souls of people. You invest in those two things. That lasts forever. Lasts forever. Never goes out of style. Never loses its value. How, what does it mean to invest in the word of God? That means you, you spend time in the word. You get up every day like the ant gets up to go and find food and store it up. You get up and you open God's book. And you spend time in it. And you spend time with him. And you pray and you ask him by the power of the spirit that lives within you to illuminate what you're reading and make it real to you and your life. And you gotta be intentional to do it. You gotta plan to do it. 45 minutes in here with me on Sunday ain't enough. Not enough. Not even close. You need to spend time with the Lord and his word. You gotta be intentional about it. How do, you, how do you be intentional regarding the souls of people? That means you identify people in your life and you, you go after them. You, you, you identify the lost people that you know and you share Christ with them. You share the gospel with them. You pray that God can bring people into your life. This doesn't just happen by random chance all the time. You gotta be, they're the best soul winners I know make a habit out of it. I'm going to share Christ with somebody today. They make a habit of it. And this is what you do. If you're not intentional, you're not going to be successful. No athlete that is successful ever gets there by accident. No MMA fighter wins a belt rolling off the sofa after having downed a box of Krispy Kreme. If that were true, I'd have a belt. And so you got to be intentional. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, crown. But we, an imperishable. That means it's something eternal. You are going after an eternal prize. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. There's a discipline here. There's a practicality. You gotta get out of bed, get in the word. You go out the door, you're ready to encounter people. Make an impact for Christ, Okay? You say, well, I'm not much of a reader. Too bad. Well, I, I want to be great for Christ, but I don't really like to read the Bible. It doesn't work that way. Doesn't work. That's like saying I want to be in shape, but I don't want to sweat. <laughs> you got to get in the Word. You, your dream matters not Amen. without discipline. And then there's critter number two, the rock badger. Look at this guy. Aw, look at that. Isn't he cute? 
Yeah, badger is kind of a misleading term for this one. We read about him. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. What this guy is, he's really a big guinea pig. That's what he is. He's not all that big, you know, the rock badger. He's not really a badger. He's just kind of a rodent, really. Uh, He's small enough a hawk or an eagle could swoop down, carry him off. But they don't. How come? Because he makes his home in the rocks and the cliffs. He's a rock badger, all right? He knows, I'm little, but I'm smart enough to know to build my house where it's difficult to get to me. Because those rocks are strong. And because my house is in those rocks, that makes me strong. All right? It protects me. And this is a key that we can learn in your notes. Key to success number two. Build your house on something stronger than you. you got to build on something other than yourself. What does the Bible call us Christians? Is there an animal that we are referred to as? What are we? We're called sheep. Why does the Bible call us sheep? Because sheep are stupid. (laughs) All right? They're inept. They can't do anything. They can't run. They can't crawl. They can't dig. They can't swim. You drop them in a lake. They sink to the bottom. I've never done that. Um, They can't intimidate. There's no roar to a sheep. They can't even emit a must like a skunk to ward off predators. They are utterly helpless. They can't hide. There's no camouflage. They're just blatant white out on the green grass. Predators can have at them. But you know what a sheep can do? A sheep can recognize and follow the voice of the shepherd. And when they do that one thing, they are the mightiest creature on the earth because the predators don't mess with the shepherd. And so that's how the rock badger is. He's weak and little, but he knows if I will build my house where others can't get to me, I am mighty. And so that first key to success that we read about pertains to reading the word. This key to success involves building your life on the foundation of the word. Okay, you got to read it to know its precepts, but then you don't just accumulate knowledge, you put that into action in your life. You live it out. Matthew 7, 24, Christ says, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But then what does he say in verse 26? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And you're just gonna crumble. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or in the seat of scoffers. Where's his delight? It's in the law of the Lord. What is that? That is the word of God. And what happens if he will delight in it? That doesn't mean simply read it. That means build his life on it. The end of verse 3 says that in all he does, he prospers. Why? Because of the Bible. I am a weak, stupid sheep. But what I can do is I can listen to the voice of my shepherd. Where is his voice found? It's in his word. And I can read his word. And then I can follow his voice by obeying the precepts in his word. As I memorize it, meditate on it, live it out, I stop being narrow-minded. I stop being myopic. I stop being short-sighted. Now I can not only read but apply what he has given me via his word, and I could be a successful husband, father, friend, employee, leader. And if I will read the good book and run with wise people, I will grow wise. Now, if you want to fall down a lot, 
If you want to turn to spiritual mush, then you don't read his book, you don't follow his book, you don't hang out with anybody who cares about his book. You run with foolish people. Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You want to stay away from harm? Stay away from fools. Unless you want that, unless you want to turn to mush. But your company matters. Your crowd matters. I always tell young people, be careful who you hit your wagon to. That's good advice for old people too. Be careful who you hitch your wagon to. You need to hang with those who care about righteousness. You say, well, didn't Jesus care about sinners? Yeah, he came to seek and save the lost. But the crowd he ran with were seekers of him. They were seekers of him. And every apostle, you see, they had a posse around them. They had godly men and women around them. So read the good book. Run with the good guys. If that rock badger gets cocky, veers away from those cliffs in which he's made his home, what happens to him? What do you call a sheep that strays from the flock? A meal. That's right. Critter number three, the locust. The locust. Here's what Proverbs 30, 27 told us. It says, the locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. You know, the locust is one of the most feared things in the Middle East. Uh, they are feared because they can bring down a jet. They get sucked up into the exhaust and it goes down like a rock. They can stop a train because in multitudes they land, they light on the rails, they get run over, they turn to goo, they clog up the tracks. Uh, you can defend yourself against many things, but a locust plague you cannot defend against. They come in multitudes, they light on the ground in mass numbers, and they just start marching. They start marching, and what do they do? They consume whatever's in front of them. And what the first locust doesn't get, the one behind him finishes it off. And they obliterate crops. And they devastate uh, agriculture. They move right up over livestock. They can eat the bridle off a horse. And you can, you can take one locust, one single locust, and you can hold it between your fingers. You can squash it like the bug that it is. But you put him in a swarm, and he is awesome. He's unstoppable. Locusts are the greatest army on the earth. They've got no king, no queen, but they work as a hive mind. They work as a team. They recognize they're part of the greater whole. Guess what? You and I can learn from that. In your notes, here's key to success number three. Learn to operate within a larger unit. Learn to operate within a larger unit. I want you to look around. This is your larger unit. This is your locust swarm right here. This is what will make you great. To operate as something, part of something bigger than yourselves. The church is called the body of Christ. What do bodies have? Members, right? They've got different parts of a body. There are many members, and they're unique. A hand does not do what an ear does. An ear does not do what the eye does. The eye does not do what the nose does or what the mouth does. We all have different roles within the body, but as a whole, the body functions in a marvelous way. You are unique. God made you. There's nobody exactly like you. You've got a gift mix that is special, but on your own, you're not as great as you could be. You've got to be part of a body. You've got to be part of community. And so a church is not just an overworked staff. A church that is successful is when the various members of the body understand what they're shaped for, gifted for, and they put it to use. This is why we're investing in this. This is why we have next steps on Sundays. And by the way, if you haven't taken next steps, let me encourage you to go register for next steps. It's only three Sundays. But our goal here is that people understand who they are 
in Christ. They understand how he has made them, what you are shaped for in ministry, how to plug into community, how to plug into service, and to do what God has intended for you to do. Because community is what you're designed for. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. You've got a role in this thing called the church. You're not just coming to sit, soak, and sour on Sunday. You're here to become great for God. And you can't if you don't know what he's made you for. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? In that verse in Ephesians, I just read a whole bunch of gifts. I'm going to start teaching on spiritual gifts on Wednesday night, this Wednesday night. Do you know what your gift is? If you don't, you know the best way to find out? It's not one of those little tests, although those can be helpful to start the conversation. But you know what you need to do? Get in a group. Get in community. Start to serve. Form some relationships. And then the the Christians, the spirit-indwelled believers around you will observe you and recognize what God has done in your life. And they can help you identify your special gifts because you have them. And so God models us to be in community. And he, he models that himself. He's in community. The Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. God's in community with himself. If God wasn't interested in community, he would have created Adam and just stopped right there. But he didn't. He made Adam a helpmeet. And he said, be fruitful, multiply. When he, he called Abraham, he wasn't going to stop with Abraham. I'm going to make a mighty nation. There's a multiplicity there. And so we are built for that. When I talk to young adults who tell me that they're going to go off to college in another city or they got a job that they're going to go you know, start in some other place, I always tell them, when you get there, join a church. Find a church. It doesn't have to be a perfect church. In fact, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll just screw it up. All right? So there is no perfect church, but find a church that teaches the word of God. Join it. Go up to that pastor say, I'm your locust reporting for duty. Put me to work. Because that's God's design for all of us. And then the final critter is the lizard. The lizard. We read about this guy. It says the lizard you could take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Uh, some of you have a Bible that says spider, okay? Uh, that's not the best translation, okay? So just throw that Bible. No, don't throw your Bibles away. I'm just kidding. Uh, but there, the, the best translation is lizard. And I picture Solomon. He's walking around his palace. Solomon, richest man in the world, magnificent palace. He's got security. He's got elite uh, mercenaries guarding his walls and gates. His walls are 100 feet tall. They are wide on top, so wide a choir can march across them. Uh, he's got uh, walls that wrap around the entire city. You cannot come and go unless you go through these massive gates where there are armed guards trained to kill. Solomon is on a throne. He's surrounded by gold lions that project superiority and security. Nobody can touch him. No king of Judah that walked with God was ever assassinated. They were unreachable, protected. And so with all of this confidence, here's Solomon. He's walking around this palace in total peace. And he looks down and he sees a lizard. And he, he, he chuckles. And he, he bends down. And he says, well, hello, Mr. Lizard. What are, what are you doing here? Man, I've got, I've got immeasurable fortune invested in security. I've got walls. I've got armed guards. I've got the whole nine yards. And yet, how did you get in here? 
How did that lizard get in there? It's because he wasn't intimidated by that which intimidated everybody else. He boldly went where others were afraid to go. And what we've learned so far in our study is, number one, we are to plan to reach an objective through daily discipline. Number two, we're to build our house in something stronger than ourselves. Number three, we're to operate within a larger unit. And here is key to success. Number four, be audacious. Be audacious. What does that mean? To be audacious means you show a willingness to take surprisingly bold risks. Do you take surprisingly bold risks? Or do you live in fear? Maybe Solomon looks at this little lizard and he thinks of his daddy. Thinks of David running to face that giant Philistine armed with only a sling and pocket full of rocks. Maybe he thinks of Gideon, who tore down his father's pagan altar and built a new altar to the true God, Yahweh, while there's an angry mob that's calling for his death. Maybe Solomon's thinking of Moses, who was left to die in the wilderness and yet returns with just a staff to face down the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Boldness, audacity. Every successful figure in Scripture was audacious. They had this mindset If I die, I die. I'm going to pursue big things for God. I don't care. If I die, I die. How's that for theology? Maybe we should greet every new believer here with that line. People come and they get saved. We say, hey, welcome to the family of God. If you die, you die. We'd separate the wheat from the chaff real quick, I think, with that. But this is the mindset we're to have. We, We spend so much time playing it safe. We spend so much time chasing things that they don't matter. Listen, if something's worth dying for, it matters. It matters. So what does this mean to be fearless? That means you go out and you share the gospel with somebody and you're unafraid about it and you don't care what they have to say. Some people are like, I can't do that. What if I offend them? What are you going to offend? You're going to offend them in the hell? Don't be afraid. There's a level of practicality here. We're not just auditing stories about dead people in the Bible. There's to be something that we, we put into practice in our daily lives. Your objective is not heaven. That's the byproduct. That's the benefit. That's God's objective. Your objective is to be audacious for Jesus Christ. To live out your identity. To hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. It's what Christ did that will get you into heaven. It's what you do that will determine what kind of crown you get once you're there. Here's a final definition of success in your notes. It's living a life unimpressed with and unshaken by the temporary. But emboldened and encouraged by the eternal. That temporary stuff doesn't impress you. You don't crave that. You're about what is forever. A few years ago, I learned about a remarkable young lady named Kayla Mueller. Kayla Mueller was from Arizona. She volunteered to be an aid worker in Syria because she wanted to bring comfort to people who were suffering. And so she went to Syria, and while there in Syria... She was abducted by ISIS. And I've come to learn that Kayla Mueller was a devout Christian. 
And whereas most people, when they get abducted by a terrorist organization, their mission might change. Kayla's mission did not change. She went to bring comfort to those who were suffering. That remained her mission. She did not alter her mission to be about self-preservation because she was in captivity with two underage Yazidi girls and she dedicated her life to protecting them at all costs from these ISIS monsters. And in so doing, she was recognized by ISIS as what they considered to be the ultimate prize, an American Christian woman. And so they took her and they made her the personal sex slave of the very leader of ISIS himself, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And for an entire year, this wicked man abused her. He would come and he would take her from the house where she was being held with those two young girls. And he would take her away for hours. And I don't even want to think about what he did to her. The ways that she was violated. But she would come back later with tears in her eyes. But she would immediately begin to comfort these two girls who were very scared. And it turns out that these two girls were sisters. They had an opportunity one day to escape. And the decision had to be made very quickly and they implored Kayla to come with them but she refused because she was afraid that her American appearance would endanger them and bring about their being recaptured. And so she stayed. She said, go, just go. And so because of her, they were able to leave and be rescued. And Isis held Kayla for longer amounts of time. And they did allow her to write letters to her family. And one such letter reads like this. It says, I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I've come to a place and experience where in every sense of the word, I've surrendered myself to our creator because there literally was no one else. And by God and by your prayers, I've I felt tenderly cradled in free fall. And I've been shown in darkness and in light, even in prison, one can be free. And I'm grateful. And this grateful believer remained a servant of Jesus Christ to the very end even in that hell where she eventually lost her life because of these beastly terrorists. And you and I, we don't have to suffer and die like that to be considered a success in God's eyes. But I know this, that Kayla Mueller, in losing her life, one day will stand before a holy God and he will grant her the crown of life, the martyr's crown. He's going to look down at her and say, my daughter, good and faithful servant, well done. I want to hear well done. I want to be considered a success. Is that your desire as well? Is your life audacious? Is your faith rewarding? Is your faith fun? Do you have fun being a Christian? You know, playing sports is fun. I grew up playing sports. You know the only time Playing sports is not fun. It's not when you lose. You can still lose and have fun. The only time playing sports is not fun is when you stay on the sidelines. <laughs> Man, for it to be worth it, you got to get out there. you get got to get on that field. Why are we content staying on the sidelines? 
auditing the stories of dead people who lived long ago. What do you say? We'd be like Kayla Mueller. And we throw caution to the wind and we say this week, let's make a difference. We get those who surround us, our community, and we say, what can we do to make an impact, an imprint on this world that is eternal, that doesn't fade, that isn't just for our temporary entertainment, something that matters, that lasts forever. If we do that in God's eyes, that's success. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray a blessing upon every warrior in this room. And that's what they are, Lord, in your sight. The righteousness of God. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us, that we might walk fully in that identity to make an impact. You have put eternity in us that we might seek to invest in that which is eternal. I pray your blessing upon everyone here in Christ's name. Amen.